From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The Pope's intent certainly wasn't to pursue this project of synodality and then have that end in October 2023. The goal is to form ourselves for a new way of moving forward through the world together. And so now we're starting to think as universities, especially, what are the ways that we can contribute to this process and what ways might we embody this? And can we do it in a way that isn't simply a Catholic way? How can this just be a way that universities ought to be moving forward together and creating opportunities for students? Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome back to the show Peter Jones. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Ethics and the Dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University here in Chicago. Fans of the show will recall we've had him on before to talk about an event that he helped to engineer and conceive of and put together that involved the entire Western Hemisphere, pretty much, North, South, and Central America, all bringing university students to speak in real time on a Zoom call with Pope Francis. That was a couple of months ago, and and so we'll definitely put a note about that in the show notes. But today, we're going to talk about another aspect of this growing body of work that is coming out of this event. Professor Jones got a chance to actually sit down and meet with Pope Francis recently, and so we'll get into all of that. But before we do, Professor Peter Jones, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's wonderful to be back with you today. I'm fascinated by everything that is going on in this conversation that we're about to have. But the main piece, I think, for listeners that haven't heard that earlier episode, maybe let's set the stage a little bit and talk about this event that brought together the various universities across North, South, and Central America. What was going on there and how did it come to be? Sure. Great. Okay. So back in the fall, we were asking ourselves at the Institute of Pastoral Studies, what can we do to integrate our students and our university community into the process of the Synod of Bishops? This time, the Synod, as Pope Francis has set forth, is a two-year process of essentially shared discernment, which means a lot of lists. A lot of people will know that the Catholic Church and its hierarchy are not always pegged first and foremost as good listeners, but this is the kind of thing Pope Francis wants to cultivate, so he's trying to institutionalize a form of this. So it's a great listening exercise intended to include everyone from around the globe. And we thought, okay, how can we participate in that? How can we bring the students to bear the university's Catholic community as a voice within that process? So we got to thinking, eventually our group grew to four organizers. We recruited for the first event, a kind of launch event, Dr. Emil Secuda, an Argentine theologian and a person who's written about Pope Francis extensively. We thought, oh, this will be an interesting person to kick us off. She immediately encouraged us to stop talking about synodality and instead to do it. And so we 
crafted over time this plan to bring students together, to get students talking to each other across borders, north and south. She was named the off head of the Office of the Pontifical Commission for Latin America. That excited us very much, obviously, and she used that position to gather together as many diverse students from across Central and South America as possible. We did the same across North America, including Mexico and Canada and the United States. And we put the students in rooms and we said, hey, we want to talk about a shared concern, namely migration, forced human displacement. What are your experiences from your families? What is your personal experience? What are your communities talking about? What do you need as a community and what can the church be doing more of or differently uh, in, in order to support you and your communities? And they shared a, a lot. Pope Francis got wind of what we were doing because Dr. Kuda happens to work with him as the head of the office of the Pontifical Commission for Latin America. And he said, this is exactly the kind of thing I want to support. Of course, that's me paraphrasing what I think is going through his mind. And he said that he would like to participate in our event. So immediately our lives were turned upside down and we began to focus in a new way, our energies on preparing for this. And the students were meeting in groups. They were coming up with all kinds of projects and questions to share with Pope Francis. We challenged them to summarize those in three minutes apiece. They elected student representatives, and those student representatives from each group got to meet with Pope Francis in a live Zoom meeting that occurred on February 24th. You can see it on YouTube in Portuguese, Spanish, and English. It's there for anyone to go check out. So that really was the beginning of this. Well, and so when this event happened there in the end of February, about how many people total were viewing this? How many people have viewed this? What was the impact of this event with Pope Francis? So we anticipated that there would be quite a few people watching live because it included so many people in so many different countries. In the end, we had in our groups 128 students in 22 different countries representing 58 different universities all participating in these groups. I think that somewhere in the range of 40,000 people maybe were watching live. Reuters was live streaming it on their website, as were a couple of other media outlets. And of course, it was on the Loyola YouTube page. That was where we were had everything placed. Since then, the number of views, I'm sure, has grown. But more, even more interesting than that is simply the media coverage of the event. It's, it was an odd thing. And Pope Francis, in a way, was leaping over the walls of protocol, so to speak in order to do this. We didn't use normal channels to reach out to him to present the invitation. I think he surprised a lot of people by accepting the invitation, and he certainly surprised a lot of people by the method of engagement that he embodied and exemplified. Here he was. He's not a young man. It's it's 8 o'clock at night in Rome after a very long day. He begins every day at 5 a.m., and he has meetings all through the morning. He He's an extreme, he works seven days a week. He's a busy guy, but he showed up and he was listening. He was calling students by their name. He was taking notes and responding to their questions directly. He was modeling the kind of listening that he wants other people to do. And the media coverage around this was impressive. Our marketing department tells us that over 700,000, excuse me, 700 million people engaged articles, blogs, news reports about the encounter. And that's just a staggering number to me to think about that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Peter Jones. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Ethics and Dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're talking about both a 
both an event that he helped to create in the end of February of 2022 that involved Pope Francis talking with university students from across the Americas, North, South, and Central America, but also what has unfolded since that event came to pass and what he's been doing in the meantime. And so we'll be getting into all of that as our conversation continues. So, Dr. Jones, you just mentioned that the initial kind of hit of the audience was around maybe 400,000 people. And then the kind of lasting ripple effect of that, the people that were in some way involved in either watching it later or hearing news reports about it or, or getting caught up in the information about it, was closer to 700 million. And you mentioned that's a, a number that you have trouble getting your head wrapped around. I also have trouble getting my head wrapped around that. But I guess that's one of the things that we can say whenever we're not dealing with just local Catholic events, but rather when we're dealing with the Pope, the Pope tends to bring a crowd. And so you, you mentioned something a moment ago that I want to circle back to. You say the Pope was modeling the kind of listening that he was hoping would happen in the Synod on Synodality. Could you expand upon that a little bit? What did you mean by that statement? Sure. Well, it's the kind of listening that's supposed to be embodied in Synodality. Synodality is a strange way of saying we're going to have a meeting. But it's not just we're going to have a meeting, we're going to have a certain kind of meeting that's going to proceed in a certain kind of way. And he described this in a homily he gave in October before the Synod began. They were actually launching the Synod process formally, October of 2021. And he describes these steps of listening, of listening to each other in order to discern for shared action. And so the kind of listening involved here is not listening to argue, listening to persuade, listening to make a point. It's rather listening for understanding, which sounds so simple. And yet we rarely do it. We all have an agenda most of the time, but to accomplish something, we need concrete action steps and outcomes and so on. He's asking us to listen intently to one another, share with one another openly, and then discern together in that sharing a shared vision of what's real of what's true, of what's important and good and what we should pursue together so that it's something that can be in common. I I keep using the word shared, but I'm having a hard time thinking of a better, having a hard time think of a better word in relation to that. But the goal really is to establish a shared vision of reality in order that we can work together in its midst to pursue some shared end, which only emerges to us if we've actually listened to each other. So the very first step is simply to listen for understanding. So that's the kind of listening that I think he was modeling at our meeting with the students. At a couple points in this conversation so far, you've used a term discernment. And I'm wondering for listeners who maybe have a hazy grasp of what that word means, I'm imagining that you're using it not necessarily in the way that is sometimes used in common language, but you're using it in a technical way. But I could be wrong about that. Would you tell us a little bit about what you're meaning by this word discernment in this conversation? I'm glad you're asking what I mean by it, because a lot of people have a lot of ideas about what this might entail or what it requires. My sense is actually emerging in my own way through this experience, because I did not grow up in a Catholic or Jesuit context. And so teaching now for, I'm about to start my 10th year teaching at Loyola, being suffused in the Ignatian paradigms that are in the water, so to speak, there has been really eye-opening and life-giving in so many ways. And As I grow into this understanding of discernment, I'm learning so much about it. And this last six months has been an exponential advance up this learning curve around discernment. And the 
Discernment can be a personal and a communal reality, but the goal is to gain insight. The goal is to see and understand more correctly, if I can put it that way, more rightly, you know, right seeing, right reasoning. And as much as we can do that on our own, what we're aiming to do here in this effort, and what I mean by this, is a shared discernment, which means we have to actually speak truthfully to one another. We have to share our experiences and we have to share them in a spirit of humility and openness. And then we have to listen to others share in the same mode. And together, if we're actually listening to each other, then a shared understanding of what's real, true, good, beautiful, and so on emerges to our shared consciousness. And that's the discernment I'm specifically interested in. It has that dialogical aspect that creates all kinds of problems, but also all kinds of possibilities. And you've used this phrase a couple of times in the conversation, a sort of shared vision of reality. And I think a lot of listeners are probably rolling their eyes at this point and saying, gosh, yeah, because we live in such a polarized culture right now where even facts themselves sometimes seem to be in dispute and it's hard to have some kind of shared vision of reality. So I want to ask on behalf of those listeners, are we talking about a kind of rose-colored glasses, Pollyanna, pie-in-the-sky, utopian vision here, or are we actually talking about something that you have seen concretely realized as this process has unfolded? Are we actually getting to a shared vision of reality? It depends on who you ask, but I certainly am optimistic. Now, when I say a shared vision of reality, I actually have in mind not this notion that we'll see everything in the same way or come to a shared understanding of everything, but whatever it is that we're talking about. So, for example, we had put the reality of migration and involuntary displacement peoples, that kind of thing, in front of these students, and the goal was for them to come to a deeper and more authentic, more truthful understanding of that reality, which means you need to talk to people who experience it, experience the push-pull mechanisms of this from different perspectives across the equator, across our geopolitical borders, across other borders with, that divide us. And I think we did accomplish advancing towards a, a shared understanding of the reality. At the very least, it's an improved understanding of reality, and we the students who participated have a better sense of the complexity of the situation and therefore the needed, the level of sophistication and complexity that will be necessary in the pursuit of their own projects to deal with that particular problem. And I think that I actually talk about complexity in the context of my courses in theology, in the context of mystery and what it means to live into and think about the reality of of a mystery. And it's not a problem to be solved, right? It's not an equation to be balanced. It's not like a a Scooby-Doo cartoon where at the end, the meddling kids get to come up and unmask the person who's been behind it all at the end. That's not the kind of mystery we're talking about. We're talking about just something that transcends our ability to articulate a reality. And I think the process of listening and engaging and dialoguing is in fact the end goal. But we of course have shared concrete goals that we're pursuing. And I've seen that happen. And I think the Pope has seen that happen too. And that's why in some ways he's insistent upon this. And the bishops in Latin America and the meetings that they've had beginning in the 1960s in Medellin and then following in other cities, Parasita in Brazil, for example, and some of the other cities where they've had these meetings and then issued documents, they've been following a kind of synodal process this whole time. But you can also see how that process is sometimes more and sometimes less successful. And that if the resulting dialogue, the resulting discourse around a, a series of meetings is divisive, is polarized, and doesn't 
come to some shared notion, then the Pope's not going to act. And that happened at some of the most recent, the Synod on the Amazon. Not very much happened that a lot of people wanted to happen coming out of that. And I, my interpretation of this is that the Pope saw that the kind of listening he needs and the kind of symptoms of there having been shared discernment didn't manifest, such that he didn't want to create further division by making a kind of authoritative decision that would... And I think that made a lot of people unhappy in that process. But that tells me that it's possible. It's been done. There's a way to see when it's mostly happening and when it's mostly not happening. And that changes the decisions that we make. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted to welcome back to the show Dr. Peter Jones. He's clinical associate professor of ethics and dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're talking about an event with Pope Francis that he helped to put together in late February of 2022 and what has been following from that event, including a meeting with Pope Francis at the Vatican, which we will get to when our program continues. But for right now, we'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're welcoming back to the show Dr. Peter Jones. He is Clinical Associate Professor of Ethics and Dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. And he helped in February of 2022 to put together a multi-continent event, North, South, and Central America, that involved Pope Francis called Building Bridges North and South. And since then, he has been working to both replicate that event, but also he has had the chance to go and meet with Pope Francis, and we're going to be talking about all of that as our conversation unfolds. So this is really where I want to go next, is the whole sort of momentum coming out of that Building Bridges event in late February of 2022 was... Both this is unprecedented, this has never happened before between the Pope and students from so many different regions of the world, and at the same time that it was unprecedented, it seemed like everyone was suddenly saying, and we don't want this to be a one-off, but we want this to happen again and again. And so, if you would, help my listeners understand how it moved from this is a unique event that we've never done before to this is something that we want to see happen maybe on different continents and with different populations with the Pope moving forward. So, I think it's important to think about two aspects of this. On the one hand, this was a student-centered event that was attempting to lift up the specific voices of certain students in order to center their narratives, their agency, and to put that front center. And one of the things we asked them to do in their encounter with Pope Francis was to describe not just the challenges, the problems, the issues that they see, but to propose solutions. What are the things they would like to do or see done or contribute to in order to address the challenges associated with migration? 
And so clearly part of what we want to do in this not being a one-off is for that not to have been performative, we have to follow up with these students, continue to support their projects that they presented to Pope Francis. And we're actively working with students. There's a group in Brazil that's working on one of the projects they presented in Central America, I believe specifically a student in El Salvador taking the charge on one particular project. And we still have more work to do to discern what's which students have the energy and can fit into their they have their primary job is to do well in school right and graduate so we have to see who's who can do what and how can we support them so we're discerning that and actively pursuing it a dream of mine is that we'll all of a sudden fall into a giant pot of money and we'll be able to have a quote-unquote summit with all of these students and get them all to rome in september august september of 2023 right before the actual synod of bishops with the act with the bishops will occur in October, following which Pope Francis will issue a statement. So we'd love to keep these particular students, the 128 of them who were a part of our groups together. So that's one thing that was a part of what we meant when we said this can't be just a, a one-off sort of thing. But another thing is we built a really interesting network of faculty and universities to work together in a way that we hadn't worked together before. So we have now ideas of the ways that the universities can continue this project. And beyond this particular effort, I don't. the Pope's intent certainly wasn't to instill this and pursue this project of synodality and then have that end in October 2023. The goal is to form ourselves for a new way of moving forward through the world together. And so now we're starting to think as universities, especially, what are the ways that we can contribute to this process and what ways might we embody this? And can we do it in a way that isn't simply or perceived by some to be a Catholic way? How can this just be a way that universities ought to be moving forward together and creating opportunities for students? An example of that is we're planning right now, fingers crossed, pretty confident, but we have to get the letter from an organization to which we've applied for a grant to support the development of a course that will include five to seven universities. We've already got four signed up and we're going to run a course that'll basically be a course offered at five to seven universities across the Americas simultaneously, but students will enroll in it at that university, just like they would any other course at their university. But it will basically be team taught by five or six international scholars from all these different places. The course will be on ecclesiology and synodality. So its primary audience will be upper level undergraduate students in theology, entry level master's students in ministry and theology, perhaps from across the Americas. So we're experimenting with that particular course that'll run in spring 2023, so early 2023. And assuming that goes well and we can iron out the kinks and make it effective, then we're going to ship that out as a model for other disciplines to pursue. I'm already working with a group of business school deans around the world to think creatively about the ways that some of their courses. But we also want to think in the same way that we did with our February 24th meeting, which was to have an interdisciplinary group of students. Those students came from across the liberal arts, (laughs) the field, the disciplines and fields of study across a liberal arts curriculum, all to address a single social challenge. So we also don't want just theology students or business school students or whomever to have these interesting experiences, but also to have interdisciplinary courses around social challenges to which we would invite enrollment and registration from people in a variety of fields to bring and contribute. the common factor would be this inter- the international and multilingual nature of this. We've got to work out all those problems and kinks and logistics in order to make it uh, sort out. And assuming that we can do that, we're going to we're going to ship it out. So that's another potential outcome. Another outcome. I'm actually in the very earliest stages. I thought we would be a little farther along, but that's okay. There are some folks who do work in Africa, in certain parts of Asia, and Europe, who would like to basically recreate what we did, or rather 
think of events that are analogous to, inspired by what we did with students to connect them around an issue unique or particular, not unique, but that has its own particular flavor and challenge and solution, therefore, in their regions, whatever those might be, let them discern them together, but then organize students in a co-curricular kind of way like we did and invite Francis to a meeting. I have no idea if he'll be able to make all of these, but there'll be a significant figure to be there to listen and further their projects and advance the work that they do. And certainly this would be a good experience for the students. And there are more things that we're working on. I've got a whole list in front of me of some other possibilities that are in the hopper, but those are the immediate things that are, that are taking up so much of my time these days. Well, and, and one thing that is ringing out in all of this is that you're building the plane as you're flying it, but you're also trying to use this, whatever you're building, as a replicable model, as a way to very quickly turn around and say, and you can do this too. And I'm wondering about what are some of the processes by which you're doing that kind of rapid prototyping? Like, how are you maintaining quality? How are you maintaining consistency of event across these as you're moving so rapidly? Through sheer force of will, prayer, and good luck. <laughs> That's all that I can say. And very much like, I, it, as you were speaking just now, this, the phrase came to me, like, this is basically open source synodality. Like, we want the code to be visible and we want everybody to see the things that are great about it, the things that are terrible about it that need to be improved or the things that work in one context, but not in another and need to be adapted somehow. Really want this to be a project where people can look at what we've done and then think creatively about their own contexts and hopes and anxieties and dreams and all of that sort of thing and, and think about this method. So we very much are flying by the seat of our pants and we have a sense of value and priority when it comes to lifting up those who exist and are typically underrepresented, exist at the peripheries, who are pushed to the peripheries and think about the ways that we can challenge the status quo by centering voices, by providing a platform. That very much is in our mind and was on our mind, especially with Pope Francis. Here's a platform we may never have the opportunity to employ. Again, what are the ways that we can maximize the impact that these students have? And I think we were Maybe successful in some ways, less successful in other ways, but we're still working on it and still trying and trying to help others think creatively about what they can do as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Peter Jones. He is Clinical Associate Professor of Ethics and Dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're talking about a series of events that he has helped to bring together involving not only Pope Francis and the Vatican, but also students from across the Americas, North, South, and Central America, and now expanding that set of encounters between Pope Francis and students to other locations around the world. You've been using a word throughout this part of the conversation that I want to circle back to. You, you've talked about forming students and I, I think that, that that may be something that some listeners might be caught off guard by. They might think, well, the job of someone at a university is to fill my head with knowledge. It's not necessarily to change some fundamental aspect of myself or to make me more religious or less religious or what have you. So I want to make sure that listeners are hearing correctly. When you're talking about formation, what do you have in mind and what do you think, as you say, you mentioned that you want this to be a new model for universities across the world. What is that model? What are you thinking about? How will students come out of this process, what will the change be? This is such an interesting and difficult question because you're asking me to articulate parts of my own 
identity and self-understanding that I probably take for granted. <laughs> so now the challenge is to raise them to consciousness and begin to articulate them in ways that make sense to others. They make sense to me perfectly, but I need now to have it make sense to other folks. So the term formation, it, it, and you mentioned one possibility of education, which is simply the old blank slate understanding that students arrive with empty minds and I'm going to open up their skulls and pour knowledge in and close them back up and send them on their way. Clearly a part of what education is sharing content. Students need to come away with an expanded knowledge base, right? That is a basic part of what we're doing. But if that's all we're doing, we're not imparting any wisdom of any kind. We're simply pouring information into people's minds. And if there's anything that our world sorely needs, it's an ability to interpret information, to recognize patterns, to see and discern priorities and values implicit in decisions and activities that people and groups are making, and then to think conscientiously about how we're going to interact in those systems from which we cannot escape and move forward. So when I think about education, it has to be all of that. It can't simply be the discrete passing on of atomized facts or however you want to put it. And so especially this is something that I really appreciate the Ignatian tradition's supply of language and concepts around this notion of formation, because it speaks specifically to the formation, the education of whole persons. These aren't disembodied minds that enter into our classrooms, but people, persons with emotions, illnesses, strengths, traumas, hopes, and all of it. And it's all there. And you can't ask students, it's not fair to ask them to somehow bracket all of that and objectify the content. Rather, they engage and encounter the content we presented them as whole persons. And so we need to be respectful of that. And we need to accompany students through that experience, however comfortable or uncomfortable it is in order that they can actually learn from it. And to go back to a very old way of thinking about this, it's pretty Aristotelian. If we're thinking about our formation of ourselves for intellectual virtues, for moral virtues and the cardinal virtues, and those virtues that Aristotle talks about, he says, well, the only way to, to gain and advance in virtue is to do them, to simply do good things, to have models of this and to begin thinking about it and to participate in it and to form new habits. That's what a virtue is. It's just a habit. So are vices. Those are habits too. But a virtue is a good habit. And the goal here is to simply practice this stuff in order to provide models, hoping that we can repeat it. And the more often we do it, the more natural it becomes so that we just automatically become good listeners and dialogical in our discernment, in our activity, shared activity and so on. So that it, we really want it to be second nature, this way of proceeding. And so when I think about formation, I think about all of that stuff, but especially in the context of working with students, it's encountering the whole student and helping them encounter and integrate and respond to as whole persons, not disembodied minds, whatever it is we're trying to learn or accomplish in a particular class. That's really powerful, this notion of responding as whole persons. And this, when you talk about having listening become kind of second nature, a kind of virtuous habit that we're all involved in, I think that a lot of people can get behind that kind of model for university education. So I appreciate you taking time to to really line that out for us. But I'm thinking now about the implications of that. And I'm going to use a media reference to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make here. There was a movie from the late 80s called The Last Temptation of Christ, and it was a controversial film, but I'm thinking of one particular scene where Jesus Christ, who's being played by Willem Dafoe, 
is meeting Pontius Pilate, who's being played by David Bowie. And there's a point where the David Bowie Pontius Pilate character says, you, you keep coming, you messiahs, and you keep trying to change things. When are you going to learn? We simply don't want them to be changed. And one of the things that I'm aware of in this process of synodality, this process of trying to think about new ways of doing things, is that we're going to encounter people in the institutional church who say, well, that's wonderful, but we simply don't want things to be changed. And not simply in the institutional church, but also at the university level, administrators who say, we've got a model that works, why are you messing with it? So before we go to break, I'm wondering, in the face of that kind of criticism of saying we simply don't want things to be changed, we like things the way that they are, how would you and how would your colleagues who have been working on these projects on a global scale respond to that sort of resistance? I think it's first important to acknowledge that resistance is probably as present in me as anyone else, that unconsciously I've been formed in and that i bear habits and practices and biases that are not readily known. I don't know these things about myself. I don't know exactly what fears are lingering in my unconscious, poking holes in my ego and pushing me to decisions that I might justify in different ways. Human beings are excellent at justifying decisions they've already made in the most rational and dispassionate ways. It's eye-opening to think about what human agency really is. And then you think about human agency in a context of complex institutions and social, you know, overlapping, interacting social forces and institutions. It's a nightmare. And if, so when, I, when you ask a question about that you're going to face resistance or what do you do in the face of this resistance, I just shrug my shoulders and go, well, that's to be expected everywhere. There's no place where that's not going to be the case. But also I think that we can model that. That of course, everyone who's embedded within and benefits especially from and thinks that it's just life is perfect in a given system, whether that's a university system or an economic system or a corporate system, whatever it is, of course, people are going to benefit from that are going to resist change. But a part of what I understand my vocation to be is as a disciple of Jesus Christ who stood before David Bowie and had to answer those kinds of questions said, we, as a follower of Jesus, the only thing that I can do is go where he went and listen to the people that he listened to and amplify the voices that systems and institutions aren't typically listening to. And if I have access to some of those and have the means and the whatever it is that I need to accomplish something and to help lift up those voices, provide them with some aspect of social power in order that their agency can be, what's the word, activated, in order that they become protagonists in a way that history will actually see and acknowledge and remember. Great. That's the goal here. But you're absolutely right. There's going to be a challenge. There's not going to be a simple straight line towards institutional change. And I think Pope Francis sees the same thing. If we had invited and gone through, you know, our bishop and our bishop's council and eventually the curia and tried to find an, get an invitation all the way to Pope Francis' desk in order to have him sit with these students, listen to them, never would have happened. I'm absolutely confident in the fact that it was because we went around the institutions following what we believed were the promptings of the spirit that it all came to be. And then Part of my own discernment and reflection on what's happened is we must have gotten something right because look at what's happened. If we were way off track here, this couldn't have been, this couldn't have been simply. And so it's the same thing within the universities and the institutions. And they exist in the way that we they do because of the way that we reinforce them. We reduce the norms that hold those systems together in our own activities and in our own actions. But that also means that we can cultivate new habits in ourselves 
complexity theory tells me a lot of those by a lot of people over time will actually revolutionize the system. It's not, there's, it's not reform versus revolution. It's, that's just one of the, another binary to try to find our way through, but rather it, 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 you make changes through ac- activating the surplus that is invisible to the system. I began to first learn about this stuff, and this is still the best example that I can think of that a lot of people are familiar with, comes from the traditions of African-American literature in the early 20th century and into the middle part of the century with Richard Wright and, oh my gosh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man and Richard Wright's Native Son, for example. The Invisible Man is not actually invisible. He's just a person who doesn't fit the norms of power of a society because his skin is too dark. He's a black man in a white world, so he's invisible to the system. The discourse that dominates a discourse on the surface, so he's invisible and has to move underground, so to speak. The native son in Richard Wright's novel, if I recall this correctly, is mute. He might be seen, but he's certainly not heard. And I think about that same thing. That doesn't mean that those people have no agency. It doesn't mean that I don't have agency as a person within institution. It doesn't mean that students don't have agency. It just means you have to exercise it in creative ways. Here's a way we've already proven you can work around it. You can get visibility. You can be a protagonist. So regardless of what success you may have, which you ought to pursue, of reforming institutions, you can still do what you need to do to some extent. So get to work. And that was our invitation to the students. That was our invitation to people that we met was simply do the work and the spirit will work out the rest. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Peter Jones. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Ethics and Dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're talking about his involvement in a massive multi-continent event with Pope Francis called Building Bridges North and South, and what has been happening since that event in the wider Catholic Church across the globe. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Peter Jones. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Ethics and Dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. He was part of a group that put together a massive multi-continent event in late February 2022 involving Pope Francis called Building Bridges North and South. We've talked about this event previously on our program. But since that event, Dr. Jones has been involved in trying to recreate those kind of continental events with Pope Francis. Francis in other regions of the world and trying to build this model into something that is replicable at universities across the globe. But he also had the chance to sit down and speak with Pope Francis just recently in the wake of this event. And so that's where I want to turn now. Dr. Jones, you had a chance to travel to Rome to be in the Vatican and to sit down, you and a small group of organizers of this Building Bridges event, with Pope Francis himself. And I'm wondering, first of all, how did that come to pass? How was it that you were able to not only have this event with Pope Francis, but be invited to the Vatican to sit down with Pope Francis? This is what happens when you ride the coattails of the most amazing students that have ever been. (laughs) People with passion, energy, faith, constructive visions and ideas, people who are doers. And the Pope had such an interesting experience with us on February 24th. I think he appreciated that opportunity. 
We were honored to provide that opportunity for him and what an honor for him to be able to meet and listen to and encounter these incredible young people that, that he spoke with in that meeting. We knew that we wanted this not to be, as we spoke a little bit ago, a little bit ago about how we didn't want this to be a kind of one-off event. And so we had already been talking about before the meeting itself, we've got to get to Rome and we've got to cultivate some specific relationships depending on how closely aligned we want our student-centered university-led event to be with official structures within the Catholic tradition, the Curia or other Vatican offices. But we knew we, at the very least, we wanted to be present, to listen, to reach out, to share our energy and to see what we could accomplish. I think in the course of the planning of that, Dr. Kuda, who sees Pope Francis regularly working with him now, she, she has since been promoted right before our February event, actually, she was promoted to be secretary of the Pontifical Commission for Latin America, which made her one of the two, I think, highest ranking women in the Roman Curia at the time. And in any case, we knew we wanted to go and she had mentioned to him that we would be there. And so, of course, we'd love a photo op if it were possible. Why not? And he said, absolutely not. This has to be an official meeting. I want to support your projects. Don't come see me me at Santa Marta, where I'm staying, where I sometimes receive private guests. This should be an official visit. I want it to be published in the bulletin. I want it to be on the Vatican News website. I want there to be photographs and records and whatnot. So you must come see me at the Apostolic Palace. Of course, I'm paraphrasing, putting words in his mouth, but this is what I'm hearing. And so that's what happened. On May the 13th, we have actually have the printed invitation here. I got a copy of it and brought it home. It's stamped by the prefect of the papal household and a formal invitation to visit the Vatican at 11 a.m. on May the 13th. Well, on the way to finding out what happened in that meeting, I want to circle back to something that you said just a moment ago. You said he does, he didn't want to meet you in his residence, but he wanted to meet you in the Apostolic Palace where he receives official delegations. He wanted it on the schedule. He wanted it to be official. And I recognize that we can't know all of the Pope's intentions here, but why do you think that was an important shift to move this from a casual meeting to something that was more official and on the record? Because however successful we were or not in our particular event, I think he saw our intentions and our heart and our articulated desire in such a way that he recognized what he's been trying to get people to do. And in that one instance, I think we hit the mark. And so he wanted to lift it up again and to say, if you're going to do more of this, I want other people to know about it. And I want people to perceive this as a papal priority. And being the head of a massive institution, whatever power and money we may think is behind any of that, certainly political power and ecclesial power within the Catholic tradition, of course, he wanted to signal that this is what I want you all to be doing. Sadly, politics is everywhere. There are bishops around the world who are not interested in what the Pope is up to. There are people that are still resistant to the ideas of the Second Vatican Council there. Not everybody is rowing in the same direction in the Catholic boat. And I think this was yet another opportunity for him to put an exclamation point on his particular idea of how we should be proceeding together. And so I really think that's why not that we did it perfectly, not that this was the greatest thing that ever happened to him, but simply here's an example of the kinds of things that I want people to be doing. And I want you all to pay attention. <laughs> and we, so we were, we organized this actually thinking that's what was happening. And it was the very first meeting we had. I arrived on Thursday and our meeting was on Friday morning. And then we were there for five days or so all together as a group taking different meetings and it all followed from and we got to play the pope card at every one of those meetings and say here 
we're here and the Pope has given his blessings on the activities and our ideas and projects and here's what we would like to do. And so that gave us a little bit of, of weight in, in terms of what we were able to accomplish. You said earlier in the conversation that if you had followed the official channels, none of this would have ever happened and that you feel like because there was a willingness to go and utilize some informal relationships and roots to get this together, that was part of what happened. But it, what I'm hearing you saying is that the Pope then came behind you and gave an official push to this, almost to say, and I anticipate that you, your group, will meet now some opposition from these official channels. I want to make sure that I'm giving you as much tailwind as I possibly can. These are my words, not yours. And again, we can't know what what the Holy Father's intentions are here. But as I say that to you, does that feel right, or would you say it in a different way? No, that feels absolutely right. And I think it's a good way of putting it because we can't operate outside of these institutions, you know, in the same way that we recognize that the institutions and systems that objectify us don't see all of us and that we have to present ourselves in certain ways and move in certain circles in order to be seen or heard. We all know that there's more to ourselves, more to our ideas, our desires, our hopes that ever can be captured by those institutions. But at the same time, without institutions and systems, we have no agency at all. <laughs> and if we're going to get some things done. And if we might activate the deeper parts of others who have particularly important positions in these systems, you never know who's paying attention, who's listening and what they may be interested in doing. And so I think a part of what the Pope maybe, I don't know how intentionally was not in any of this, but what a part of what I'm interpreting politically is that he wants to support this and he wants to send this up as a signal I don't want to take too much of the kind of emergency metaphor here, but maybe he was shooting off a flare, you know, and say, hey, here we are, all those interested, let's get to work and move in this direction. And here's some group that's ready to get some work done and not just talk about it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Peter Jones. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Ethics and Dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. He was part of a group that put together a massive and unprecedented event in the Western Hemisphere called Building Bridges North and South, which involved Pope Francis meeting with university students from North, Central, and South America in late February of 2022. Since then, he has been working with this group to replicate that event in other areas of the world and drawing on that event to think about new ways that universities can both educate and form students and had the opportunity recently to sit down with Pope Francis in a meeting with a small group. And that's what we're talking about today. So I think what all of my listeners are now really wanting to know is you got a chance to be in the room with Pope Francis. What did you all talk about? What was that like? Set that scene for us. Oh my gosh, it was extraordinary. And it was obviously personally transformative in all sorts of ways. And it was a very surreal and emotional and challenging morning, to be quite honest with you. The whole thing was remarkable. We walk into this door just on the right side of St. Peter's Square. After we show our invitations to the Swiss Guard there, we walk up these massive, beautiful steps, enter into the courtyard of the Apostolic Palace. We're met by the quote unquote, papal gentleman who's very smartly dressed in a tuxedo and with all kinds of interesting jewelry on. He leads us into an elevator. We walk through a corridor frescoed by Raphael. And you're in a palace. This is a state visit. 
it's the wildest thing. And we're paraded through all these rooms with other people doing other things, waiting. We went, there was a conference organized around the Morris Letizia taking place with moral theologians from around the world talking and thinking about its application, its implementation and so on. And uh, they were in this large reception hall, maybe, I don't remember how many people were there. It could have been 50, maybe a hundred. And we're paraded basically across the stage in front of them. They're waiting on the Pope and we're going to meet the Pope first. I'm like, I'm sorry, you're waiting on all of us. But that's, a, none of that is random, I'm told. Like the, there's so much theater happening. But anyway, we walked through the, the all, these room after room that's blows your mind away. You know, it, it looks like you're just walking through the Vatican Museum when it's empty. <laughs> that's what it felt like. You're just going through room to room. We make the corner, we're up on the second floor. And if you've ever seen images of Pope Francis, with they basically throw the rug out the window, right? And then he comes to the window and he addresses the crowd in St. Peter's Square. That's where we are. We're on the second floor, which is in the United States, we would call it the third floor. We're walking around towards that south-facing wall and we get to the corner room and that's a waiting room. And I see the papal keys on the door and I think, oh, we're here. So we're waiting on his previous meeting to end. That It ends, a few people come out and then we're escorted in. And where we walk along that wall, I can still see the, out the windows to my left. I'm looking down into St. Peter's Square. And then behind one of those doors, there's the man himself. This was the first week where he was receiving people in a wheelchair. And that was something that he mentioned. He would have preferred to stand and greet us, but doctor's orders and by the sheer pain that he's experiencing because of his knee, he was forced to stay in a wheelchair the whole time. I was fine. I didn't mind that at all. I was just happy that he was healthy. And if people are wondering, he is not a frail human being. He's very strong. When he shook my hand and he grabbed my forearm, he didn't let go for a few seconds. And he's a powerful person. I can attest to that, even sitting in a wheelchair. And he's, he was an excellent spirit. He was happy. And I did not get the sense at all that because he's in a wheelchair, he's in decline. Rather, he just has a knee that's really bothered him. And his doctor's mad at him for not taking weight off it earlier. So now he's having to stay in a chair more often than he would otherwise. So I have every confidence that he's in good shape. So I'm interested, what is an audience with the Pope like? Does he just read prepared remarks or is it an actual conversation or is it somewhere in between? Like, how does that work? So that's, we talked about this as a group before we went in for about a month and we had some talking points that we wanted to bring into our meeting, but we primarily wanted to leave it open so that he could lead the conversation. And when we arrived, there was no agenda and he didn't have, you know, he welcomed us, Dr. Kuda. It was, so it was Dr. Emilce Kuda. And then my colleagues from Loyola in Chicago, Dr. Michael Murphy is at the end. Then Dr. Felipe Legareta, one of the colleagues at IPS with you and I, David, and then Dr. Kuda was in the middle. And then Dr. Miguel Diaz, another theologian from Loyola, Chicago, and then I'm on the end. And so she's in the middle and she gets things going and introduces all of us and we smile. At one point, Miguel Diaz is, he grew up in Cuba and speaks Spanish. And obviously, Emilce is from Argentina and the Pope is from Argentina. And Miguel bursts out into a song, it's a, a tango in Spanish. I don't know the words or the song. But very quick, and the Pope just smiled and laughed and started to briefly sing along for just a split second. That lasted maybe 10 seconds. But that set the tone for the meeting very early on in the first five minutes. This is going to be personal, friendly, engaging, open conversation. And that's precisely what it was. We didn't tick through an agenda. We simply talked about our experiences with young people. And that was actually where he lingered the most, was how he thinks we ought to be relating to young people. And so... On that, how he thinks that we should be relating to young people, earlier in the conversation, you had a sense 
of kind of formation and how we should be listening and sort of let the young people be leading. As you were listening to Pope Francis giving his vision, did you hear that same kind of vision met by his vision or did he pull it in a different direction? No, absolutely. That's what we heard. But he went so much farther and he pulled me and he pulled into my own consciousness things that had not, that I had not properly dealt with. And that it, he is so intelligent and pastoral and he can see right through you in so many ways. It was really remarkable. What it, it, he immediately began to talk not about what we should be doing to help young people, but how we have to check ourselves to get out of the way of young people. And he said, he used the word in Spanish, I don't recall, but it basically translates to anesthetize. He says, more often than not, wittingly or not, we end up anesthetizing the youth or drugging them somehow. They have ideas, they have criticisms, they're stirring up trouble, so to speak. And he says, and we try to shape that. We try to guide them along and pull them toward a predetermined end that we've decided for them. Or we, And he's he, over and over, at least three times, he repeated this little nugget of wisdom that we have to help them and walk with them, but we have to get out of their way that we can't lead them, that our job is not to lead young people. Our job is to help form young people, help them form themselves and to find their own way. Just, just like when you're a parent and you have a, your child and they stumble and fall, when they're really little and just learning to walk, you can't pick them up every time. You have to let them learn how to stand, right? And then when they fall, now I know how to stand up and I can stand up and keep moving. I don't want to belittle students by suggesting they're toddlers. I'm just thinking about the ways that we as parents we can create unhealthy relationships of dependency in any relationship. And I think that's what he was talking about. He said, first of all, that young people have to be able to share openly their own lives and experiences. Like we cannot narrate their experiences for them or tell them what's happening. We have to simply provide them the tools and the space. And then we have to listen to what they're sharing with us. That was the first thing. And then he said, inevitably, young people create conflict. They immediately see things that we take for granted and don't notice, and they criticize, and they come up with things that need to be changed, improved. They hope for something greater than, than we can as adults, because all that creativity and critical vision has been squeezed out of us somehow by our systems, our societies, what our education, whatever it is. And he said, we have to let them create that conflict and in fact, encourage that conflict, help them manage it. Don't let them fall or be succumb to despair or anything like that, but nonetheless, allow them to create conflict to stir up trouble. And then he's, this is where he adds the comment about too often we drug them or anesthetize them. We can dismiss them. We sometimes distract them by putting something else up in front of them. He said, we have to accept the fact that they are, quote, protagonists. He used that word again. He laid out a sequence that I carry with me and I'm seeing a pattern in so many more places. He said, students create conflict and that is essential work. Like that isn't just an inconvenience, that's essential work to, to progress, advancement, uh, transformation and so on. It all begins with the creation of conflict. And what he wants adults to do is to walk with students in such a way that that conflict gets transitioned into a full-blown crisis that it, it rattles cages, it makes institutions and structures shudder such that now there's a crack, the whole thing can be transformed. So he talked about the sequence from crisis to conflict 
to transformation and how that can happen personally in an individual's life, in a young person's life, if they have the right, if adults around them are walking with them appropriately. But that also is something that we can do in a shared way to generate conflict. And he left us basically with this idea. One of the quotes that I wrote down was, as long as you make trouble, it's okay. <laughs> he, he really honed in on this idea that we want to stir up conflict and discomfort in order to shake people out of their complacency, I think, and ready us and motivate us to work for transformation. Well, Dr. Peter Jones, I am so excited by these opportunities that have come your way for you and your colleagues as a result of simply following a great idea of some students and letting the spirit get involved with this. I hope that you will continue to come back to our program to tell us about the progress of these events and the ways in which this vision is helping to not only reshape thinking at Loyola University here in Chicago, but also universities across not only the northern and the Western Hemisphere, but all across the globe. I'm just very excited by this conversation. I'm grateful for, I know what must have been an enormous amount of time going into creating this event and the sequences following this event. But I'm so thankful for you taking that time to do that, but also thankful for the time, especially for you to come and talk about it with us here on the program today. Thank you for that. Thank you, David. It's an absolute pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to share some of this experience and amplify the work of these students and Pope Francis. We've been speaking today with Dr. Peter Jones. He is Clinical Associate Professor of Ethics and Dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. He was part of a group that helped to put together Building Bridges North and South, an event in late February 2022 that brought together students from North, South, and Central America in a Zoom call with Pope Francis. Since that event, he has been working to help to replicate those sorts of events with Pope Francis across the globe. And he recently had a chance to meet with Pope Francis, who blessed their work and gave them momentum to keep going. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.